Hi, everyone. Welcome to another edition of the Svarim Chatter Podcast. On this episode of the podcast, I'm going to be joined by Michelle Margolis, who is the Norman E. Alexander Librarian for Jewish Studies at Columbia, and Sharon Lieberman-Mintz, who is the Curator of Jewish Art at the Library of the Jewish Theological Seminary of America. And we'll be discussing the Jews of Corfu. This is uh, a, an ongoing exhibit that I think that they are co- co-curating together uh, with Columbia and JTS about the Jews of Corfu. So we will get in, we will discuss the exhibit and the history of the Jews of Corfu. And I, uh, for some listeners, where Corfu is and what Corfu is. Um, okay, so um, I'll start with you, Michelle. Um I had you, you were on the podcast and more really, I guess, accurately is when it was live shows a long time ago. Many years so, ago. Yes. So start off, we'll start off with you. Tell the listeners about yourself and your background. Uh, sure. Um, so I grew up in Baltimore and I went to Beis Yaakov, regular, uh, you know, standard sort of from background. Uh, then my undergrad is from, is in history from the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. Um, and I have a master's in Jewish studies from NYU and a master's in library science from Long Island University. Um, I started, my very first job was at the University of Pennsylvania as a reference librarian for Jewish studies. Um, and now through a series of just wonderful events, I am here at Columbia um, curating their amazing Judaica collection. Okay, so now Sharon, I'll turn it over to you if you can tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and your background. Sure. I'm Sharon Lieberman-Mintz. I uh, grew up in Manhattan and attended Barnard and Columbia Graduate School. I am the curator of Jewish art at the Library of the Jewish Theological Seminary, where I've been for 36 years, which is just wonderful. And I am also the senior consultant for Judaica at Sotheby's, uh, heading up their rare Hebrew book and manuscript department. And I've been there for 26 years. And it's been an exciting time because I've been working on exhibitions, publications, both at JTS and elsewhere. Your listeners may remember the Printing the Talmud exhibition at Yeshiva University, which was one of my um, finest exhibitions, I think. So Agreed. That's, <laughs> that's a beautiful one. Okay, so let's talk about this exhibit. Why do an exhibit on the Jews of Corfu? How did this exhibit come to be? So... I'll, I'll jump in if I may. Um, so when I started at Columbia in 2010, I immediately wanted to learn about the collection. It was a relatively little known collection. Um, my, I was the first, I am the first librarian for Jewish studies here, um, you, um, exclusively dedicated to Jewish studies. Um, and so I wanted to learn, sort of do a deep dive. Um, and I started to read a lot of the materials that had been written about manuscripts, various items in our collections. Um, and I, of course, knew about Salem Baron as a professor of Columbia, and I saw that he wrote a number of articles on the Jews of Corfu. Um, I had to look it up. <laughs> it's a, it's an island. It's a Greek island. Now it's part of Greece. Um, and, uh, it, and, um, and I learned that there was this incredibly vibrant community there. Um, and when I went to look about at the collections, you know, who had materials on Corfu, um, I found that actually the majority there's a concentration of Corfu materials in Morning Heights, Morningside Heights. Uh, between Columbia and JTS, we have the largest collection of materials relating to the Jews of Corfu. So it was sort of a natural connection. JTS and Columbia are six or eight blocks away, depending from where you're going. Um, and so we're right near each other. We have all sorts of, of connections between the two institutions. 
But as far as I know, we've never done anything like this together before. So I reached out to Sharon and I'm so grateful that she uh, was excited to take up the opportunity. Uh, it was a wonderful collaboration. I'll jump in. Uh, the mandate of the uh, Department of Jewish Art at Columbia is to share the treasures of the Library of the Jewish Theological Seminary with the greater public. And one of the ways in which we do this is by having a series of exhibitions. And we've had exhibitions uh, for the last three decades at the library. And in the last five years, the library was building a new building and it reopened uh, several months ago. And we have this fantastic new exhibition space. And it's been very exciting to inaugurate a new series of exhibitions. The first one began in May, which looked at some of the treasures of the collection through the lens of Jewish weddings and marriages. And this exhibition, which Michelle and I began working on five or six years ago before the library uh, closed for rebuilding, uh, has been long in um, planning. And it is the second exhibition that we're having in our new space. And we are looking forward to having people visit and share in these treasures. So when Michelle suggested this before the library uh, moved off site, or before the rare books moved off site, I thought this is a great way to, to teach people, to let people know about what we learned was the Jewish communities of Corfu, because there was more than one Jewish community, which you'll hear more about in a minute. And it seemed like a natural to collaborate. And uh, Michelle generously shared some of uh, the most wonderful material from Columbia, which is on view at the JTS Library. So there are exhibitions in both spaces. There are exhibitions at the Library of the Jewish Theological Seminary, and there's an even larger exhibition at Columbia. And we recommend that people make time to see both of them if they come up to Morningside Heights. Okay, and we'll, we'll talk further about when the exhibition is going on until and there's an online exhibition as well. There'll be a link in the show's notes, so we'll, we'll talk about that. So let's let's start off with Corfu. And Michelle mentioned it's in a Greek island, but where exactly is it? And the, the, I guess the history of the island and who was kind of in control of the island um, throughout the century, especially the period of when the exhibition is kind of covering. Uh, so it was under a few different... Uh, jurisdictions, I guess. Um, it's, there, was, there was a period in uh, late medieval, uh, I guess in, during the medieval period, it was it sort of shifted, um, the, um, sorry, Naples and Sicily both had um, sort of competing um, ownership of the, or jurisdiction over the island. And ultimately the people of, of Corfu actually got fed up with it and went to Venice. Uh, they sent a seven person delegation to Venice to ask them to take over the island. Um, and that was in, uh, I don't have the year. What, what 1386. 1386. Thanks, Sharon. Um, and one of the people, one of the people on that delegation actually was a Jew named David Sem because the Jewish community in Corfu at that point was already so prominent and so important on the island. And then Venice maintained jurisdiction up until, uh, fairly late. Uh, there was a brief period of British rule before the before it joined Greek uh, before it joined Greece. So there were 400 years where where the island of Corfu was under Venetian rule. And it was really 
it's an interesting moment because people think of Corfu as being part of Greece, but actually it really fell under the cultural sphere of Venice. And a lot of the items in our exhibitions reflect the Venetian influence uh, on, on the Jews of Corfu. Yeah, we'll talk more about Venice. I mean, mainly for for those listening, Venice was a republic for a while, right? It's a Venetian republic. It was kind of a city-state. It wasn't just a city in Italy like it is today, just to, to clarify. Um, so let's talk about the Jewish community of Corfu. I mean, what kind of community, what kind of minhagim did the Jews of Corfu have? So it's communities, um, and the plural is important because that led to some interesting um back and forths. Um, there was sort of what we, we tend to call the, the native community or um, the Greek speaking community, um, which was Byzantine, which had, which had come initially from the East. Um, and according to some um, documents, they date back to the destruction of the second temple, um, uh, but the earliest, well, that's what, um, but they, and, they, and they used what we call the Romanio rite. Um, the other community was the Italian community, but that was really a Southern Italian community. So based out of, again, Naples and Sicily for reasons you can infer. Um, and then uh, they used what's known as the Apulian, right? Um, but the Italian community was very open. And so refugees from various places, from the Iberian Peninsula, from, um, from all over Europe who came through Corfu, which was kind of a stepping stone on the way into the Ottoman Empire, would stop in Corfu. Some would stay, some would go. Um, but if they stayed, they joined the Italian community. So the Greek community remained smaller while the Italian community uh, grew and grew. Um, Sharon, do you want to add anything there about the the Romani order? Um, I just add that the, the first time that we hear of any Jew living in Corfu is from Benjamin of Tudela. The world-class traveler who arrives in Corfu on his way back and forth to the Ottoman Empire. And he says that there is one Jew around the year 1160 living in Corfu. Uh, we believe that the community was really established probably in the 13th century. And that's when it takes off. And the reason that we call them Romanio Jews, or they call themselves Romanio Jews, is because they were coming from what we consider nowadays a geographical sphere known as the Byzantine Empire. But the Jews and the inhabitants uh, in those days actually thought of it as the Eastern Roman Empire, and they call themselves Romans. And so it's not really surprising that the Jews call themselves Romani, and the Minhag is the Romani or Romaniot rite. It has nothing to do with Rome of Italy, but has to do with the Byzantine sphere. Yes, um, I'm actually blanking right now, but there's a, uh, you'll, maybe you'll, one of you will remember this. Yosef Akain of Corfu he has these two small little svarim. One's on Hishanis and one is on Musaf. Forget the names offhand of these two small svarim he published in 16th century, right? I think. That's not the Yosef Akain. No, it's a different he one. It wasn't of Corfu. Different one. Not him. He not the story. Yeah, no. Somebody <laughs> else. Somebody else. Okay. He has these two small svarim. One's on Hishanis and one's yeah. on Musaf of Shabbos. I'll find the names of it. Interesting. If I find yeah. it in Hebrew books, I'll put in the link. Yeah, he has, he, he has the, the Romani Old Nusach. He's talking about he was from Corfu. Um, okay, so the, so and the Corfu Nusach was unique. It was, it was really its own. And when most people talk about the Corfu Nusach, it actually probably refers to the Nusach of the Apulian 
Italian Jews. So Puglia is what's known as the heel of Italy. If Italy is a boot, it's the heel of that boot. And uh, it's generally not the Byzantine right, I think. And that's, that was something interesting to me because I actually always thought of Minhag Corp was the Byzantine right, but I don't think that's the case. Okay, so what was the Jews position in uh, Corfu? I think under Venice, they have to wear a yellow yellow badge. They would they have was there a ghetto there? What kind of and then what kind of positions were they in in the in in their I mean both communities? I guess just in this one, I guess the Jews would all be the same in the communities for this. Yeah, um, actually, they won't be the same. Um, so it's a great question because even though the restrictions in Venice were much stronger, um, Corfu Jews sort of had a were better off. Um, part of it was because of their long history there and their um, deep connections to the community. Um, but also, and I just learned this uh, this week, actually, I'm still learning about this. Um, when they went, when they, when they went to Venice, they made certain, um, they agreed on certain things with the Venetian government. And one of them was that they wouldn't have certain restrictions. And so when certain things came up, like the yellow badge, like the Jews being expelled from Venice, which they were, um, that did not then apply to the Jews of Corfu. And we have a couple of documents on display in the Columbia piece of the exhibit about this whole discussion. Should the Jews in Corfu have to wear the yellow badge? Should they have to be expelled? And in both cases, the answer was no, um, because of these, partially because of these pre-existing um, agreements. And then as far as, um, as far as, rights, the rights could have been different. Um, and we have a document that's on display at JTS that discuss, actually at JTS and at Columbia, that discusses this, where um, the Greek community started getting very concerned because they saw the rapid growth of the Italian community. Um, and they were afraid that the Italian community would sort of overpass them and, and um, overshadow them. And so they went to the Venetian Senate and they said, we'd like to um, have you know, documentation and rights because of seniority, because we've been here for hundreds of years longer than the, than the Italians had. Um, now, if you go to Italians to try and argue against Italians, you probably won't win. Um, I think that's true for any, any group. Um, and so the, the, the ultimate ruling of the Venetian Senate was that if you had been living in Corfu for over 40 years, then you were considered senior which essentially then included all of the Italian community as well. Um, the Italian community was thrilled by this judgment. We have a copy of the judgment itself at Columbia, but because they were clearly proud of the judgment, they rewrote it on, uh, they rewrote the entire judgment in an illuminated manuscript on parchment um, with all sorts of just extensive illustrations, clearly showing how proud they were to be able to have this position. Um, which was essentially, which was equal to the Greeks, yes. um, but essentially their rights were not impacted at all, um, notwithstanding the fact that the Greeks were the one who, ones who brought the initial case. So there was some tension within the two communities because of things like this as well. But you see, and you see that document documented within the objects on display. So you mentioned like manuscripts over here. I mean, I'm just gonna, so a question about the exhibit. I'll kind of go back and forth with the exhibit and the community. Is in the exhibit is a lot of manuscripts, letters. Are there any printed works? What what kind of is included in the exhibit relating to the community? So this was something that was really interesting for me to dwell into. Uh, 
both uh, Columbia and the Library of the Jewish Theological Seminary have numerous uh, handwritten uh, machzorim, sidurim, occasional prayers from Corfu that seem to have been made by their owners for personal use. And several of them, uh, more than you would imagine, with a series of illustrations, which are quite unusual. What's interesting here is that these manuscripts are from the 17th and 18th century at a time where everybody else in the world, except for the court Jews in kind of Vienna who are creating these luxury uh, manuscripts as gifts to brides, et cetera, and grooms, but everywhere else in the world, people are buying printed books to daven from. And what we have here is an overwhelming kind of display of manuscripts. And the question is, why is the manuscript culture continuing in Corfu centuries after printing has already begun? And the question is actually deeper, and we haven't gotten to an answer yet, because at this moment in the 17th and 18th century, Corfu was still under Venetian rule. Uh, and therefore, Venice was a center of Hebrew printing. Why were there no books? I mean, I think there's one book, maybe two books, that were printed uh, for Corfu with uh, occasional prayers uh, for Minhad Corfu. One was a, a small volume um, in 1718, which is already quite late in the game. And so what we have are no printed books, either in Corfu or Venice for this community, and a preponderance of manuscripts and illustrated manuscripts as well. So that is a, a really interesting uh, phenomena. That, and we're open to any of your listeners coming up with interesting suggestions. We we haven't yet gotten down to figure out what is uh, going on behind the scenes here. Um, now, what was there, did they have, th were things printed later on? So that then that kind of gets into the question of, also, do you, you, okay, you can answer that, you go ahead. Uh, so printing begins in Corfu in 1877. A man by the name of Giuseppe Nakamuli, Giuseppe Nakamuli, uh, uh, brings a font. He imports it into the island, and he begins printing. There's very little printing in Corfu. I, it's maybe under 25 items, some of which are broadsides. Uh, among the first things he prints is a, a prayer book for um, Pesach night with the Haggadah. Uh, he prints a broadside for the dedication of a Sefer Torah. Um, he prints Pirkeavos. You have a Pirkeavos uh, on display, Michelle, right? Um, yeah, with, with translation into Greek, actually, which is unusual because most of what we're seeing is Italian. Um, but he, this Pirkeavos that he prints is, is actually translated into Greek, in Greek characters. Yeah, we should point out that while it was under Venetian rule, the Jews of Corfu spoke uh, Italian, uh, the Apulian dialect of Italian, except for the wealthier Jews who adopted the Venetian dialect of Italian. Uh, and in 1864, when Corfu joined uh, the Greek, uh, the Greek polity, um, they were really Italian centric. Uh, the British had been there from 1815 to 1863. That didn't have much of a dent in their language or culture, uh, and, but they were the rulers for that period. And in 1861, this same printer, Giuseppe Nakamuli, actually began printing a newspaper in that was dual language for the Jewish community. It was in Italian and Greek, and he wanted to kind of engage the Jews 
in Greek culture, which they had not been as much a part of. So this idea that he was printing uh, a Hebrew prayer book uh, with Greek translation is actually kind of interesting. I want to ask you one thing, Sharon, to explain. You, you, you mentioned there a broadside. If you could define what a broadside is. Ah, okay. A broadside is a single sheet of paper uh, printed on one side for mass distribution. And what you would think of as a pashkavil on the walls of Jerusalem, those are broadsides. The technical term for that is a broadside. We have several broadsides in this exhibition because um, there was a custom among the Jews of Italy to write poems uh, for their friends upon important occasions. And this we have this from the 17th, 18th, and even into the 19th century. So uh, when your friend got married, you would compose a poem and have it printed. Uh, in their honor. And sometimes these were read at the wedding feast. Sometimes they were riddles. In this particular exhibition, uh, we have two documents relating in, at JTS, there are more documents at Columbia, relating to Jews from Corfu who attended medical school in Padua. Padua was the first university to allow Jews to attend and matriculate in Europe. And Jews came from all over to study in the medical school of Padua. And so we have actually a diploma of a Jew of Corfu who graduated uh, the medical school there. And we also have a poem that was written in his honor upon graduation from medical school. And this poem printed on one sheet of paper is a broadside. So there are several examples of this. I'll just add, once we're talking about the medical school materials, there's also, so we have his, we have one diploma, an illuminated diploma of his, and then we have a broadside printed diploma um, as well for the same person. So we have sort of all of his academic uh, credentials yes. on display between between Columbia and JTS, which is which is kind of nice. Was that common to have, you know, for, to print like a diploma on a broadside? Is it like hanging that in his office? Like what was what was the story with that? I think it was common to document important events. Uh, so actually the diploma that that uh, from Columbia Library that's on display at JTS is a booklet. And uh, these booklet diplomas are known to us from the 17th and 18th century. Um, uh, Eddie uh, Reichman, who's probably on your podcast from time to time, is, is doing an exhibition right now about these Jewish doctors who graduated medical school in Padua. And he has these um, wonderful diplomas that are booklets. Uh, so they weren't to hang. They were actually created as documentation. Although maybe Michelle's was made to hang. Somehow I don't think so. No, I don't think so. But the 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 document, the, the broadside uh, document that we have is actually a surgeon's diploma. So think of it as your, you know, your fellowship. It's the it's the postdoctoral additional diploma. And so that that was actually printed and then filled in. Um, I guess like a modern diploma today. Um, so it wasn't, it was, it was the next, it was the next level. It wasn't just the basic medical, medical degree, which is, which is the, Ill, the illuminated one. Yeah. The diploma was for a Menachem uh, Dinatan Azar, and that was from 1761. Uh, but the poem is from somebody else from Corfu, and that uh, was 1760s, if I remember. Okay, now something I don't think I asked you, I don't know if we mentioned this, what years is the exhibit covering? Is it just covering everything or is there a specific time period we have more you have more materials on that you're focused on specifically? Most of the material, I think, is from uh, the Venetian period. Uh, the earliest document that we have is from Colombia, and that's the 1674 uh, kind of document which confirmed the rights of the Italian Jews. 
Uh, do you have yeah. any so, earlier? I, I think it's pretty much starting in the 17th century. We have Kitubo, uh not on display. We have a we have a Kituba from 1666. It wasn't it was the condition wasn't good enough to put it on display. Um, but I don't think we have anything prior to the, to the 17th century. The span goes quite late uh, because in a separate part of the exhibition, we have documents from when Corfu was under the Greek rule, um, and that sort of documents the Hebrew printing in Corfu. But we also have a, a, a really poignant document. It's a ketubah. Uh, that was uh, celebrating a marriage in Corfu um, that took place just two weeks before the Germans rounded up all the Jews in Corfu and sent them off uh, to be annihilated in Auschwitz. So what happened was Corfu uh, was conquered by the Italians in 1941. Uh, the Jews were relatively safe until 1944, at which point, 43, at which point, the, well, when the German, when the Italians surrendered, the Germans came in and took over Corfu in September, and uh, then took about nine months. And after that, the Jews of Corfu didn't really think, and they didn't, they didn't feel the danger. Um, it seems that many of them stayed. They felt that the Germans wouldn't attack them. And unfortunately, ninety-five uh, percent of the community was 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 just massacred uh, in Auschwitz. This is this is something that comes up. I mean, it, it's I I said I think in a Twitter post that you know there's echoes of this throughout the exhibit because the first thing people say to me when I say we have this exhibition up up about the Jews of Corfu is a where is Corfu or if they know where it is there were Jews in Corfu yeah um, and. The reason that I think there's so little known is because is precisely because of this, because so much of the community was destroyed. And, and I'm sure we'll get to the earlier issue there with the blood libel pogroms and the earlier issues in the 19th century. But we'll we'll leave that for for in a little bit. Um, I, I you know, and obviously the, the fate, like I said, of the community is terrible. Um, but you you did mention Ksuba there, so or or Ketubot, you know, as as you would have it online and as you would pronounce. So I mean, there was a, there's a lot there. I think is what I I can see from the online exhibit. So talk about you know talk about how many you have and what's interesting from them and the illustrations and all that. Um, the Ketuba from Corfu that are on display really reflect the Venetian influence um, of, of the art and culture on Corfu. Because if you were to come and look at those Ketubot, what you would see is that they look very, very similar to the elaborately decorated uh, Ketubot that you find in Italy and particularly in Venice and the Veneto region, as they call it. Um, so, and they include some really interesting things. They include, number one, um, signs of the zodiac. All of the ketubot we have on display have 12 signs of the zodiac, and we find these on many, many ketubot from Italy. And this is because the name for zodiac, the Hebrew word for zodiac is mazal. And when and all, many of the ketubot start with the words uh, mazal tov, uh, or Mazalatava, you know, using the, the Aramaic. Um, and uh, the signs of the zodiac are actually a visual representation of the words Mazaltov, which we take to mean as congratulations, but actually in an era uh, where people really believed that the stars had influence, meant literally, may all the stars align 
and may your marriage be one of good fortune and good omen. And I like to remind people that this is a time before antibiotics where people didn't know, you know, you got strep throat and you died. I mean, it was, it, you know, terrible things happen to people. And I know that there's a concept of Ein Mazal Yisrael, and nevertheless, there was still a very strong culture of the influence. So the signs of the Zodiac are on these two boats. Uh, Can I just jump in with an example there? Mm -hmm. um, it's actually not Corfu, but I, I just found it a, a couple of months ago. Um, in, in a volume, there was a whole family history of children, children born, marriages, deaths, all those things. Um, and it was really poignant because you saw exactly this child was born, this child died. This child was born, this child lived. This child was named after the child that died, and this one also died. It, it, you see, you see it like in real time, how how um I guess un uncertain, you know, we we sort of take it for granted in so many ways, but there was it was it was a really difficult uh life to get through during that period. There Sorry, so Sharon. No, there was tremendous infant mortality. I think I remember reading that before the 20th century, up until the 19th century, you had like 40% or more infant mortality. It was under the age of five. It was crazy. Um, and and so we have that. Um, there are images, biblical images. Uh, often, the biblical images that you find on Ketubot reflect the name of the bride and the groom. Uh, in the Ketubot from Corfu, there are, there are scenes of Moshe and Akedat Yitzchak. And it was pointed out recently to me that Moshe with the Ten Commandments, with the Luchot, and Akidat Yitzchak are both moments of establishing a relationship, right? In this case, you know, in the case of those biblical moments between God and the Jewish people. But the Ketubah is a moment of establishing a relationship and a covenant as well. And that may be why these illustrations are placed on the Ketubot. Um, we don't have documentation that tells us you know, I'm going to get a ketubah made, and uh, and this is what I'm going to put on it. It doesn't exist. Uh, so so some of it comes from our thinking about the time. Um, you should know that these ketubot are very lavish, and and were costly. And we know from Italy that the rabbis actually were not all that excited about how much money people were spending on ketubot, and they slapped sumptuary laws on them. You could only spend fifteen prachim, fifteen florins on a ketubah uh, in the 18th century, according to the sumptuary laws. I have yet to figure out what 15 prachim actually equals in buying power, but I imagine, you know, that would be something fun to figure out. Some some echoes to today about rules about weddings and things like that. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah, takanachasana and all, all that kind of thing. So what... Uh, yeah. I was going to ask, what other art? Is there other any other type of art that you have in the exhibit from the Jews of Corfu? I want to, before we move on from Ketubot, I want to just point out um, a couple of, of additional things. Um, first of all, we're having a um, a lecture this week by Dr. Shalom Sabar. He's coming on Thursday and it'll be live streamed as well to talk about the Ketubot and the unique art and the unique style of the Ketubot. There were some very interesting um, aspects specific to Corfu, um, one of which I'll mention here and and perhaps the rest you could come to the, to the talk to hear about. Um, but they dated their ketubot uh, not only from creation, but also from the destruction of the temple. And so they they took Imlo Alas Yerushalayim al Roshim Chasi very literally. So they they had the the date from Ano Monday from the for the creation of the world, and then also from the destruction 
of the base of Mikdash. Um, and actually one of the ketubot, which we don't have on display here, but which we have at Columbia, it's actually, it's in the online exhibit, has an image of the base of Mikdash literally at the top of the ketubah, because that is how you raise up Yerushalayim, al-Rosh Simchasi. Okay. So yeah. yeah, so that's that's something that we see really throughout this, this commemoration, this really feeling the destruction of the temple. Um, they're also what you find in these ketubot is interesting because they include dowries, uh, and um, and they they include various. Uh, some of them include not only the text of the ketubah but also the engagement contract, and the tanaim are quite interesting as well in some cases. Uh, there's one ketubah there which has five different um, uh, points, and one of them is that if the groom, if the husband, becomes very sick, and reputable, knowledgeable doctors agree that he is very sick, he has to give his wife a get, so she won't be subject to Yibum or Chalitza. Um, so there very, there's some very interesting customs. Wow. Now, now, now back, now I just want to back to the question of, of art. So what other art is in the exhibit? So this was a, an interesting phenomena, which actually has not been fully researched yet. In the prayer books that I referenced earlier, um, there are a series of illustrations, which we find basically nowhere else in no other Hebrew manuscripts. Um, and the illustrations are of uh, figures from uh, Nevi'im, uh, and they include images of Shoftim, and particularly a whole cycle of images of Shimshon. We don't have we don't have this anywhere else. Shimshon figures very very prominently in the illustrations. So much so that um, we have one prayer book that's illustrated with with these illustrations from 1692, and we have another prayer book sitting next to it from 1760 with the same cycle of illustrations: David, David and Yonatan, Yehoshua. There's an image of Shemesh begivon dome. You don't see this anywhere else. Manoach and his wife, Shimshon, um, uh, killing a lion um, with the with the jawbone. You know, um, carrying the the walls, the doors, doors of Gaza. Yep, of Gaza. Yeah, it, a, a very very unusual cycle of illustrations. And what's particularly interesting is that these illustrations have nothing to do with the text. The texts um, are a, a, a group of texts which seem to be unique to Minhag Korfu. And it is various sayings in Pitgamim that were recited on the Shabbatot between Pesach and Shavuot after the reading of Pirkevot. And that's where these illustrations come in. There are these various Pitgamim from the Gemara and other places. You can go online and, and sort of see these books and turn the pages. But as far as we can tell, the, the Pitgamim have nothing at all to do with, to do with the illustrations. And the Pirkei Avot, I mean, I just it, we're going to go off of illustrations again, but um, you see, you keep seeing things related, items related to specifically Pirkei Avot. Um, we have the the printed the printed version that I that we mentioned earlier. We have a manuscript version that was written for children with a translation in Judeo Greek. It, from the late 19th century. So it was written as part of how to learn how to read Hebrew, how to understand Jewish texts. Um, and we have two of those. One is Shira Shirim and one is um and one is Perkevot. And um and then we have these these um 
these these prayer books that include prayers specifically connected to Pirkei Avot. Um, so that seemed to have been also a special piece of the liturgy there. I think what's interesting is the way in which they held on to their tradition and maintained their minhag for hundreds of years. Um, this this group of pitgamim were printed in 1718. I think the book is called Leket HaOmer. It was printed in Venice, not in Corfu. And it's interesting to me, Michelle, do you know that in the book of Pitkamim, you don't have Pirkei Avot. It's just what we say after Pirkei Avot. Right. And that's the same with the Columbia manuscript at JTS, yeah. the little one. Yeah. Um, it's it's Achar HaPerek. Yeah. It's what you say after you say the Perek. The assumption is, you know, you know, you know the Perek. Yeah. Yeah. We don't need to give you that. It's interesting. I should also add that these are not professionally illustrated manuscripts for the most part. These these seem to have been done for personal use. I mean, they're lovely and they're charming, but this is not something where they went to the local artist, uh, you know, and said, I, I, th I think they were more um, personal. That's my feeling about it, Michelle. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, we do have some for the prayer books, for sure. We do have some examples where styles, rip, but not in the prayer books, like the the legal document about yes, the no, two no, communities. No, no, legal document to professional, absolutely. Yeah, so that's professional. And we actually well. see that repeated in a document that's on display um, in the Museum of Athens. It has the same um, uh, border as does uh, the Harriman, Harriman Miscellany, um, which has the same border. Clearly it was a different illustrator, but this very, very similar border as well to, this, to that manuscript. Yeah. So there were some local style but it but not a lot not not that we're seeing too much right. um the 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 genres were the same right. as as we said with um from navi from from these topics okay now i want to turn to something that's contained i think in both your collections on the exhibit that's uh, i know michelle i you you read part of this this is a safer and published about this this there was a in the 18th century there erupted in corfu kind of somewhat famous a lot of rabbanim waited from all over the area from different countries with letters and psakim about kriyashma benigun so singing kriyashma not musical instruments this is before reform this is just singing kriyashma with a nigun with a tune and uh, this was kind of a, a controversy erupts uh, I'll talk about the, the safe for those published, but uh, Michelle, we want to talk about the story. What happened? Who was involved? What the players? What was going on? And, and then materials that are in the exhibit from this controversy. Yeah, yeah, sure. And thank you, Nachli. You alerted me to this book, which you'll which you'll mention, um, which was incredibly helpful on the controversy. So we have uh, two printed volumes. They're known. There are two printed volume note volumes known. Columbia and JTS actually both have the Venice edition. There's also a Selenica edition. Uh, dealing uh, with different um, chivot about this controversy. And there are multiple manuscripts uh, that are known about this as well. So there's one, there's a manuscript from Columbia that's on display at JTS. Um, and JTS has a couple of other manuscripts relating to it. It appears that in So in the Italian shul in synagogue in Greece was, I, I, I say that now carefully, as I was, as was pointed out to me, nobody in Greece, neither the Italians nor the Romaniote would have called it a shul, because that's, of course, an Ashkenazi term. So we can call it a scuola, we can call it a synagogue, but let's uh, be, be accurate here. So it appears that when Eliezer de Mordo got up, he was the chazan, he got up and he started uh, 
singing Kriya Shema on a holiday or on Shabbat with a tune. It may have been choral. There may have been others singing. It's not exactly clear what it is that he did. Um, but Elia Cohen and um, Chaim Shabtai Cohen got up and said, you are absolutely not allowed to do this. You may not sing Kriya Shema in Shul. Um, in this way. Now, from what I've seen, it appears that the song was the same tune that was used in a non-Jewish context. Mm -hmm. So that may have been part of the problem, um, but definitely not the entire, the entirety of the problem. Um, and they reached out to Rabbanim all over, um, Tzfat, Salonika, Padua, Jerusalem, Venice, um, all over really, who, who weighed in on this issue. And we see actually initially, uh, I think it was the Rabbanim of Salonika agreed with Eliezer de Mordo that it should be allowed. Um, but then they came around to Elia Cohen's position. So it was sort of very a very big back and forth, again, to the point that Elia Cohen, um, who was the anti-singing rabbi, um, published this volume of Chuvot about why it's not allowed in Venice. And then Eliezer de Mordo published a volume on why it should be allowed in Salonika. And um, so we're talking about, you know, it's not inexpensive to print something, but they're taking this incredibly seriously. Um, and the, uh, this was, this was in the 1750s, um, really 1754, 50, uh, 1753, 54. Yeah. Um, and the, ultimately the end of the, the result was that Eliezer de Mordo had to sign in front of a Christian notary that he would never sing Kriyashma in Shul again. In Shul, I did it again, in the synagogue again. Um, so it's just a fascinating discussion. It's one of these cases where it was, it was about the halakha. It was about, it. so many people got involved. What is the question? You know, and you, you can think of some of the cases that that come up today where, you know, a lot of Rabbanim weigh in on various issues. I mean, you could talk about uh, shaitals, you could talk about bugs, you could talk about whatever it is. But these are things that that many, many people then weigh in. And ultimately, you know, there's a decision made. Sometimes it's not a universal decision. In this case, it seems that it was a decision that was dis that was accepted by all parties. Um, and what I'd love to point out here is that notwithstanding this really strong debate, um, when Elia Cohen died, Eliezer de Mordo actually wrote a poem, an elegy, Nefla Terat Roshenu, all of this um, memorializing Elia Cohen. So he clearly still had deep respect for him. And we have that in a manuscript. Um, it's not on display at Columbia, um, which, is, which is kind of a, a nice end to this, what could be just a really contentious debate. And clearly it wasn't terribly contentious. Although in the moment, reading some of the documents from the moment, it was pretty strong yeah. how they described each other and their knowledge and things like that. But it seems that it was uh, resolved ultimately. Yeah, there was a number of Rabbanim uh, involved. I don't know. That there's, I, I think there's a list here. In this, uh, there's, there's like 40, 50. I don't know. There's some that people might know. There's Roman Romanin. It was the Talmud of the Ramchal. Yaakov Chazak, I think 40, was also with Ramchal. I'm just throwing out names people might have heard of. There was many all over the place. Um, many more. I'm not going to... I think of David Pardo was involved. Chassid David, the famous David Pardo. There, there, was, there was many Rabbanim here. So there's a Sefer that's published with a set, like an 80-page introduction called Vayishma Kaili. It was published by Kehillot Yisrael Institute, which is kind of a 
sister publishing publishing. It's it's part of Avat Shalom, which is Yaakov Hillel's, you know, Yeshiva and 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 uh, publishing house. So it's it's this it's called Hillel Israel Institute, it's like a museum, I don't know, but it's connected to Avat Shalom. So they published this volume a few years ago, um, edited by Yaakov Shmuel Spiegel, and it's they, these two different svarim, Shefer Kriyashman, Kailash Nishbarim, plus this massive introduction goes through the whole thing, and then you can actually read the back and forth. Plus, I think there's there was a there was of those two svarim, one was printed. There's a, he found one edition has extra stuff in it. There's manuscripts, so there's a lot there. If anyone's interested in seeing this, reading more about it, I don't know how accessible it is to buy the sefer. Maybe in Eretz Yisrael, I don't know, but in America, I'm not sure how available it is. But uh, if anyone is interested, it, that's what it's called. Vayishma Kaili. Actually, Pulmus al Kriyashma benigun bebeisa knesa shalkilas halay talki baay korfu So that's that's how uh, the, the full title. Um, What's great about it is that it really brings down all of the primary sources. Um, he mentions a manuscript in Copenhagen that I certainly didn't know about, but I saw it and I thought, wait, that's our manuscript because we have another manuscript written by Elia Cohen who writes this manuscript as well, and because it was a Cohen. The title page of the manuscript has, um, you know, the fingers in the in the Berkas Kohenim position um, right on the cover. And so we have a different, totally different manuscript. It's about a property dispute that Elia Cohen was involved when in. And also he has the, the fingers in the same position. Um, and the title page looks very, very similar to this one in Copenhagen, which, which mm-hmm. was act- actually about the Shema debate. Interesting. Okay, so let me let, let's go to something a little bit later. Um, Sharon, I'll ask you about this. This actually relates to a, a volume that you were recently involved in editing, and so you could talk about it. I mean, when you do say Corfu, as I've told some people, I was recording an episode on Corfu. Was Corfu a strike game? That's what everybody knows about Corfu, if they know about Corfu. So, uh, what? So, Sharon, I'll ask you about Corfu and the strike game, and then the blood libel programs. We can t- kind of throw it okay. all Um Corfu, as many of your listeners will will know. Uh, was actually the place where most of supplied most of the world's esrogim up until the end of the 19th century. This is because the esrogim for Corfu were unblemished and considered exceptionally beautiful. They were considered exceptionally fine. And the situation was that there were Christian farmers who grew the esrogim both in, in Corfu and in the Greek mainland, not far from Corfu, uh, a place called Praga, um, Praga, I think, and one of the towns there. And these esrogim were then brought together by the Jews of Corfu, who sent them up to Trieste, and from Trieste they were dispersed uh, to all the communities. There was some controversy back and forth already in the middle of the second half of the 19th century that kind of looked at these estrogam and said, it's impossible that they should be so beautiful. They must have been grafted. Are these really kosher? So there was some rabbinic uh, discussion back and forth about whether the estrogam from Corfu were kosher. um, And um, it was decided for the most part that they were. But in 1891, a terrible tragedy uh, befell the Jews of Corfu. Because in April of 1891, uh, the body of a Jewish girl was found murdered. And the island of Corfu, which many of the people there had seen the Jews flourishing and were a little bit resentful uh, about the growing sort of commercial abilities of the Jewish community, um, started spreading rumors that this girl, uh, Rabina Sardna, was murdered. Uh, in order to use her blood 
for Passover matzahs. It's a terrible thing. Uh, it, it's sort of a twist on the standard, like adding well, insult well, actually, to in injury. If yeah, she I mean, Jewish, she was a but... Jewish girl. And, and as blood libels went, usually they uh, were accused of killing a, a Christian uh, child. In this particular case, some of them actually said, oh, well, really, it was a Christian child that had been adopted by this Jewish family. There were all kinds of rumors flying around. And the Jewish community, the, the area where the Jews were lived was ransacked. More than 20 Jews were killed. Um, the violence went on for weeks uh, until uh, the British Navy, which was stationed outside of Corfu, um, appealed, uh, kind of said to the uh, Greek government, you need to fix this. You need to stop this um, because Corfu had been under British rule. So the Navy was still around that area, even several decades after British rule had ended. And in fact, the Greek government, after an inordinate amount of time, stepped in and stopped the violence. This so shattered Jewish life there that it's, you know, one to 2,000 Jews and, and a large number of the Jewish community um, immediately fled within the weeks after uh, this blood libel of 1891. And they went to other countries. They went to the Ottoman Empire. Some went to Egypt. Some went to Tr uh, Manchester. Others went to Italy. Uh, and the community was, was really... Um, laid waste. Uh, as a result of this backlash, Jews around the world felt that they needed to punish Corfu uh, because it was the Christian farmers who were growing the estrogim, and they started a boycott against the estrogim from Corfu. And word of this boycott got around. And we have in the exhibition this incredible pamphlet that was published by Ephraim Dynard. Ephraim Dynard was a, a very interesting personality. A man of very of many opinions. Many opinions. He was a he was the most important uh, book dealer in America. He was responsible for uh, amassing collections and then selling them en bloc to JTS, uh, the Library of Congress, um, Harvard. Columbia was his first. Uh... Columbia, His first sale in the U.S. At Columbia. He came from the, from Latvia, from that region of Europe, and uh, and came to America and and began book dealing. But he also uh, he lived in many places. But one of the places he lived in Newark, he established a press, and published this polemical book saying you should never buy a Srogan from Corfu. So this had a lot of influence, and and it was also at a time when Srogan were planted and beginning to be. Um, marketed by the Yeshuv in Israel. So there was this idea that perhaps we should be turning to other places. The Jewish community of Corfu actually suffered because they made money uh, on the Esrogim and they were not all that excited about this um, this uh, uh, blacklisting of, of Esrogim from Corfu, but that that is what happened in 1891, 1892. Now, I know it's not the exhibit. You want to reference, though, the volume that you edited now about the Esrog, and this is, there is this, this whole story is written up. There's an article on this in there, right? Yes. Uh, Constanza Kolbe uh, wrote a wonderful article in a new book that was just published, and it actually reached the United States uh, this past Friday. And it's called Be Fruitful, the Art, History, and Culture of the Etrog. And it is a collaboration uh, between myself and uh, Dr. Josh Deplitsky and Warren Klein. Uh, Josh is a professor at the University of Pennsylvania. And Warren Klein is the uh, director of the Museum at Temple Emanuel. Uh, there will be an exhibition on this subject of the Esrog next year in fall of 2023. But the volume is out and we hope that it will be for sale 
on Amazon and uh, hopefully we'll be able to put it in Eichler's and uh, maybe West Side Judaica and Beagleisen. Um, we're working on this right now because we know it's a very timely moment, but actually it looks at the uh, art of the estrogue and also the halakha. Were there any, you know, I don't know this is like how specific this is to the exhibit. Were there any famous Jewish people, any Rabbanim, any other ones from Corfu? Sharon, you you do that one, and I'll, I have I have somebody else to talk about. So you can start okay. with the, the exciting one. <laughs> I, I think the most famous name that will resonate with people is Yabarbanel. Yabarbanel ends up in Corfu for about a year, and this is because when he was expelled from Spain in 1492, he landed in the kingdom of Naples, and Naples was a fine place to be until it was sacked in 1494 by Charles VIII of France. Naples was uh, was under contention, different rulers claimed it, uh, and the Jews of Naples were not all that comfortable uh, uh, because you, know, you had marauding armies. And so the Abarbanel picks up and he goes um, first to the island of Messina, Sicily, with the royal family from Naples, actually. And from there he travels to Corfu. And when he's in Corfu, he begins to write his parish on Yeshayahu um, and uh, and Treasar. And he's writing in the summer of 1495. And then he continues onwards. But there's a really fantastic story where he gets to Corfu and someone hands him back his manuscript of his parish on Dvarim that he had written but wasn't published yet. And he couldn't believe his good fortune because it had been sacked when he was in Naples and lost to him. And then three years later, um, it, he receives it again in, uh, in Corfu, and he was quite pleased about that. He doesn't stay in Corfu long. Uh, he goes on to um, Apulia and then eventually to Venice, as everybody knows. Um, but I think he's probably the most famous personality that people will connect to when they think about who uh, was in Corfu and spent time there. And, and wrote Pirushim while he was there. So when I started to, um, I love this story, that story from the Abarbanel. Um, when I started to do research on what we had in our collection on Corfu, so I put Corfu and you know whatever whatever other filters into to get it to Hebrew manuscripts or whatever it was into our catalog, and I kept coming across this David Ben Chaim of Corfu, um, who's also known as the Mahardach. Um, but he was much earlier than all of our materials. He died in 1530. Um, and so I didn't know much about him. I know that there were chuvot about him. Um, I looked him up, you know, I looked up a little bit. There was a famous case with an Aguna where he was actually very machmir. Um, there, that, that was discussed, um, in some chuvos. Um, but I didn't find very much. Um, it appears that he, he was a rub in Corfu at a certain point, Possibly part of a yeshiva in Corfu. It seems that um, it, the the Zichron published his chuvos, um, and at the beginning, there's sort of a, a biography about him um, that I just learned about this week. So I haven't um, I haven't done a lot of of, of reading there. Um, my my go to person on on people who write chuvos just told me about it a couple of days ago. Um, but uh, so it appears that there was some kind of yeshiva in Corfu at a certain point, um, pretty early. We're talking about the, the 14th, 15th century. And David of Corfu, David Mechaim of Corfu was part of this, um, 
was part of this yeshiva. And then there were a couple of, of students that were involved with him. And his son ultimately printed his chivos. And we, we have that in uh, Constantinople at the Sanchino Press in 1537. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, there's, you know, more research to be done. And I think that's that's really a, a, a factor that applies throughout this exhibit. Absolutely. Um, this wasn't an exhibit for us to say, oh, we know so much about this. Here's all of our deep knowledge. We do, I mean, we've done a tremendous amount of research and and I think we could say that we know a little bit about Corfu at this point, um, but really it's that there's so much more to be done. And, you know, there are multiple r- dissertations waiting to be written um, in both of our stacks. Um, we'd love to have people really dive deep into into some of the research here. Um, and actually on the uh, on the online version, I put together a bibliography of everything that I know um, that's been written about Corfu so that people have a starting point. Um, but there's really there's really room for research. And actually Sala Baron writes in his um, his big um, uh, social history um, that in, in I can't remember if it's in a footnote, but you know, there's still there's so much work to be done. And there is he writes out about a lot of things, but in this case, there is still so much work to be done on Corfu. So I think um, you know, anybody who is looking for a dissertation topic or just something to to research further, uh, there's a lot there. Yeah, I forgot about the Randach. Right. He that Zuchanaran published an edition of his uh of his chivas. Of his chivas, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, you mentioned, I, I think one, one of the, I think, uh, Pearl Herzog, who I had on previously about her father, Tovia Preshel, right? She was Pearl Preshel at that point. I think she wrote her dissertation on the Jews of Corfu, but it's a while ago. Yeah. 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 I think it was in the seventies. Um, you know, and Sala Baron wrote three, four, five articles, something like that in Hebrew and in English, um, on Corfu. Uh, Fabrizio Lelli has written a number of pieces on the liturgy of Corfu. Um, and, and there are uh, quite a few, actually, articles in Greek um, on the more modern community. Um, what I think is is difficult about cor- studying Corfu, of course, is that it's in. If you go to Greece, it's it's not Hebrew characters or Roman characters, and so you have to learn an entirely new alphabet um, to go through some of the archives there. Um, so it's it's a little bit harder. But the earlier materials, um, a lot of that is is Italian and Hebrew. Um, so there's, you know, there are, there are barriers, but there are also ways to get into it, I think. So I want to, before we get to some, the want to ask you a little bit more about these other sources where people can, can check out, but were there, are there any other particular things for either of you, Sharon or Michelle, any other particular interesting things in the exhibit that we didn't get to that you want to mention? We covered a lot. I, I was particularly struck by the continuity of, of tradition, both visual tradition uh, in the art and the textual tradition. I think that was kind of interesting. And, you know, I actually tried at one point to get a graduate student to come and work on some of these because, as, as Michelle mentioned, Corfu falls between many different spheres of study. Uh, well, it's under Venetian rule for, you know, four centuries, but the Jews studying Italy don't necessarily study Corfu. And then it joins Greece, uh, but the Jews studying Greece don't necessarily study Corfu either. And so, you know, it's kind of nishtahin and nishtahir. Uh, and I, the Library of the Jewish Theological Seminary uh, welcomes scholars. We're open. The rare book room is open. People ask, have you reopened yet? Well, yes, we have. Uh, people can come. 
Uh, it's and a beautiful space. I highly recommend it. It's a nice space to work. Um, <laughs> make appointments, study the rare books. Uh, we're really there for you. So, yeah. And a lot of these materials are now available online, both between GTS and Columbia. Uh, we've digitized entire volumes yes. that are available also for remote use. Um, one of the things that I don't think we mentioned um, was this question of, of slichos. We have all sorts of penitential prayers um, in the manuscripts. And it's, you know, there's something also to be done there, I think, a little bit more. Um, uh, illustrated also with, with really yeah. interesting illustrations. Um, we it, There's one, it, it, it says, uh, it's called Sefer Zahor Brit, um, which calls itself, uh, it says it's for Shovavim. It's for the time of Shovavim. Um, and it's it's slichos essentially, um, but it has all of these illustrations, uh, unusual illustrations, people sitting at a table, a donkey, uh, you know, all sorts of things in the margins surrounding the text. Um, so again, you know, there's so much work to do on the art, on the text, on the liturgy, on, you know, and then just on the basic history. Um, we have Pinkasim that talk about pigeon, um, pigeon shfuyim. So it was during, you know, in that period you had Adam Teller on in that period after the Khmelnikia massacres, after Tafatat, where Corfu was also involved in, in redeeming captives from Constantinople, um, you know, and various other things that happened in the community. So, so we have so many different angles to come at it with the resources that are available now. I think that was what was most interesting, the, the way in which there were so many different cultures in Corfu and and aspects in which you could look at the community. And that made it very exciting. OK, so you mentioned that you know that we, we mentioned a couple of different things people can read if they're interested. And, and you said online, there's the online bibliography. So let's talk about the exhibit. Where is the exhibit located? When can people get anyone interested? When is it going to be until and then, and then you know, and, and the online exhibit information as well? Sure. So the exhibit is in both places. Um, as I said earlier, we're only eight blocks away, so you can go between one and the other. Um, the, the hours are a little bit different. Um, Columbia's open uh, from 10 to 4, Monday through Friday. JTS is open a lot later, but not on Friday. Uh, what are the exact hours for JTS, Sharon? I think it's 8 to 7, at least. Yeah. Yeah. So Monday it's really a full day. Yeah. Um, there will be some other times, um, there, and I'll send you the link Nachi, also to the blog post. That's sort of the roundup of all the events around the exhibit. Um, so for instance, uh, we're having this lecture with Shalom Sabar, uh, this week, and I'll, we'll also be having an open house at Columbia, um, that afternoon until five o'clock where I'm going to bring out more items that actually didn't make it into the exhibit. So some of the liturgy, a couple more ketuvot things like that. Um, I'm also planning to have uh, an open house on Sukkis. So if people um, want to come and see, that's not going to be just Corfu, but it'll be in the room just outside where the exhibit is. Um, I'll have some of sort of the Columbia treasures on display, and I'm happy to talk further about uh, the exhibit as well then. Um, and then there are, I think, six tours at JTS that are possible. Um, we're also doing a, a Zoom lecture with the conservators who worked on this exhibit. The amount of labor that went into allowing the Kitubot especially to go up on display. We're talking about hundreds and hundreds of hours. We hired, we hired a separate conservator 
for nine months to work on the Columbia Kitsu boat. There are a total of 10 on display. Um, and it's, it's a huge, huge amount of work, um, requiring all sorts of knowledge of chemistry and history and, and uh, deep science, um, in our, it really, it's there. It's quite amazing. So, um, I'd recommend taking a look at, at some of the other events that we'll be planning as well. Okay, so, so you said on Sukkot, so this is like a Chalamay trip. People will still be open then? That's yeah. why I did it on Sukkot, so that if people want a Chalamay trip, um, I don't recommend bringing small children. Um, and at this point, uh, Columbia requires a full vaccination, which means two shots, um, in order to enter the building. I don't know if that will change by then, um, but I, I there, there's a link to register. You do need to be registered because I need to have your name in order for you to get into the building. Um, but yes. Everybody is welcome to come for their Cholamoy trip. I should point out that there will probably be, there will be a sukkah at the JTS library. You can come for Cholamoy as well. And uh, to enter the JTS library, all you need to do is say uh, that you're coming to see the exhibition, but they will ask for a vaccine card. You don't have to register in advance, but they want to see proof of vaccination. Okay, and there is an online link as well, right? There's some, there's some yes. an online exhibit where I can put the link in the show's notes that anyone can Right now, already you can just I'll just put that on there as well. And like you said, you'll give me any other links, any other information that you want. I'll put in the show's notes as well, and anyone can uh, check all that out. Sure. Okay. Great. So uh, thank you both for joining me, and I was very enlightening to learn to learn about the Jews of Corfu, and hope the listeners did as well. And uh, you know, at, at the at the least, everybody should go online and check out just the links, just the basic. You know, see what's there, see what's written up. It's very interesting to see about that. And uh, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you for having us. Uh